you are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and ambiguous prophecies. This is Season 1, Episode 7, The Chosen One. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Good afternoon, Adam. Hey, Carrie. I'm, I'm excited for this topic. I'm reading, finally, for the first time, Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin, and there's not a chosen one in that book, but there is a very powerful hero. So it's kind of like the backstory of, and I don't know what he ends up doing. I'm only on book one, but I feel like it's a big part of fantasy canon that I have missed up until this point. I think I read the first one of those when I was a kid and then never finished them. My parents both really liked them when they were young. Well, it's an interesting writing style. It feels more, it feels very Lord of the Ringsy, but a lot shorter. And that kind of like, we're not going to recount every word of every conversation, but just talk more generally about it almost reads like mythology. I like it a lot. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. So you wanted to mention the, uh, there was a recent panel with the showrunners from Game of Thrones? Yeah, for those of you who are on, you know, on the internet, there's been a recent hoopla around a panel with Benioff and Weiss from who did Game of Thrones, kind of basically admitting they didn't have a big plan. They ignored a lot of character information and just kind of went, wung it, I guess, winged it, whatever yeah, the past I like, tense I like of wing is. It. Yeah. Um, and they wanted to purposely remove a lot of the fantasy elements of the show. So I think it was just very validating as someone who loves the fantasy aspects of the books and struggle with that in the show to read that that was an intentional, albeit I think poorly informed choice. Hmm. Uh, I, it's, it's a really interesting panel. Someone live tweeted it and it's been uh, co- corroborated from multiple other people who were in that panel. And, and it just, highlights a lot of the issues that I think fans had with the show and with mm-hmm. with their approach to it. And then, coincidentally, they're no longer working on Star Wars. Fist pump. I'm so excited. Mm, because only two of the, days uh, later. I'm so excited that they're not doing Star Wars movies after the debacle that was the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones. I think what frustrated me about the, um, the panel was that they admitted they wanted to make the show appeal to moms and NFL players as if that's mutually exclusive from people who enjoy fantasy. Yeah, there's a lot of NFL players who love fantasy. Sure, and a lot of moms. Well, uh, maybe some of them are listening to those moms and NFL players are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Uh, <laughs> this, this is the uh, penultimate episode of our first season as we are finishing Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone today. And each of our seasons will, we think, follow one of the Harry Potter books. And uh, we will have one shorter episode, uh, episode eight after this, that will conclude season one, but it won't have a Harry Potter section. And it's going to be Carrie and me talking about our personal nerd canons and uh, all the things that we really love. Uh, and that should um, put a little bow on season one. Then we'll take a little break and season two will, will start up soon after. Our scripture quote today comes from 1 Samuel. Jesse presented seven of his sons to Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't picked any of these. Then Samuel asked Jesse, is that all of your boys? There is still the youngest one, Jesse answered, but he's out keeping the sheep. Send for him, Samuel told Jesse, because we can't proceed until he gets here. So Jesse sent and brought him in. He was reddish brown, had beautiful eyes, and was good looking. The Lord said, that's the one, go anoint him. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him right there in front of his brothers. The Lord's spirit came over David from that point forward. And our quotation from Nerd Canon is from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. 
In every generation, there is a chosen one. She alone will stand against the vampires, the demons, and the forces of darkness. She is the Slayer. All right, Carrie, so who do you want to start with? Uh, we're talking about chosen ones. It's kind of funny to say that as a plural, isn't it? Right, because the whole point of the chosen one is there is only one. I think we see this trope play out in so many properties, it can almost get overwhelming. It can go, it can totally get overwhelming. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what makes a chosen one a chosen one. Is it that there needs to be a prophecy, some kind of superpower, they fulfill a destiny, or they have some kind of bigger role? Uh, what, what did you come up with when you were looking at chosen ones? It's interesting that chosen ones are chosen in many different ways in fantasy and sci-fi. Uh, they all end up kind of coming into the same place, but sometimes there's a prophecy. Sometimes they choose themselves. Uh, sometimes they are uh, chosen by somebody else. And each of them end up moving into a place where they are the only person who can do something. Right, they're the only one capable of resolving the plot, of moving forward. They seem to be chosen for something, for a purpose, to do something. Yeah, and I think you're right that it, 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 that archetype is so almost overused because it's a, an easy way for a writer to say, this is why my main character is important. Right, and they have all the hero stuff that goes along with it. They're good looking or they're... I mean, that was in the Bible, so like like David, David. yeah, of course they're going to be good looking. (laughs) They have, you know, fabulous powers or they're able to just fulfill so many different roles. That's why it's it's amazing. We didn't put this one on our list, but Frodo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings is chosen to take the ring to Mordor because he isn't powerful. He he is specifically chosen because of the hobbits uh, have this resilience and they are not these powerful creatures like the Maiar of Gandalf or the Dúnedain of, of Aragorn or so forth. I mean, there's so many, so many powers that go along with being like the chosen one, the hero, that it almost gets boring. I was kind of bored in some of my research. It's just like, oh, of course, and you've got all these like mythical powers, and you're really good at fighting, and you're of course you're kind and compassionate. They can almost become a Mary Sue or a Marty Sue where they're just this blank canvas on which to place all of the author or creators. Like, I wish I could be like this person. So that's where I'm most interested in when that perfect archetype gets a little bit broken up. That's why I like, I, I like Buffy as a character. I like the way that Harry is a chosen hero. I like these sort of playing on the tropes. It's not just, you know, King Arthur was chosen to take the sword out. And that's, that's not interesting. Yeah. But we know that, uh, taking a sword uh, from a lady in the lake is no system for is no way to choose a system of government according to Monty Python really a terrible idea <laughs> um, yeah and I think the ones that we've chosen to talk about today maybe do break the archetype slightly uh, at least uh, so why don't we start with uh, Harry Potter I never thought about this actually I'm embarrassed to say until today but in taking apart the name Chosen One, he's literally the one Voldemort chose. When it comes down to it, there's an option of two babies he could have seen as a, as a potential enemy, Neville or Harry. 
and he chose Harry, which kind of sets all this in motion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, Dumbledore says you were marked by Voldemort. The scar is what makes you the chosen one. It could have been Neville, but he chose you. Well, Harry Potter brings up that theme of destiny, of choice. Where do we fit in? Was Harry kind of wonders, am I meant to be, is this all I I am? Do I have to fight Voldemort um, when they have, we find that the prophecy of neither can live while the other survives. And is it, I think it's Dumbledore talking to him says, you don't have to do anything, but you are choosing to, you are, you are, you marked your, your family, you changed your life irrevocably. And now you are choosing to go after him. And the fact that the villain is the one that chooses the hero in the Harry Potter story is really interesting because when we think of the chosen one, uh, especially in the biblical canon, we have the concept of anointing, and in, in, including in the word Christ. You know, Christ is not Jesus's last name. Christ is the Greek word that means, you know, one set apart, the anointed one who is anointed to do something. Uh, so, and that goes back to Samuel anointing David with the oil. And so to have Voldemort kind of do that anointing in a way is really kind of interesting and sets up this collision course in the last book. And because it's not until the last book that we really understand why that prophecy is as it is. Why cannot one live while the other survives? And it's interesting too that the powers, we find out that the powers that Harry has are nothing more than what every human being is capable of, which is love, which sounds very simple is actually as they say constantly in the books, like the most powerful magic of all. It's not superhuman powers. I mean, he ends up in possession of the Elder One, but that's not what he uses to defeat evil. It's his love. It's his steadfastness. It's his friendship. Um, it's his nonviolence. All those things that are really at the heart of uh, anyone could do, could use. Yeah, the fact that love is really his true power is so central to that story. And it actually, it's one of the things that steams me when certain kind of right-leaning Christians will throw Harry Potter away because of its witchcraft, when its main thrust is actually something that is not magical. It's just the fact that he's able to love. And he has the love of his mother marking him and so forth. Uh, and you're right, the, the, the nonviolence of it in the end, of course, we've talked about Expelliarmus being his main spell in the past. These are things that we can continue to choose over and over again. You must choose nonviolence again and again. You must choose to be brave, choose to love. And Harry doesn't have any special powers that anybody else has, except perhaps like the, the mother's love thing that saves him in book one, which we'll talk about later today. Uh, but other than that, it's really something that anybody could do. And that it creates more love. I mean, his his being marked by his mother's love has kept him alive and then allows him to be in position of this heroic role that creates more and more uh, people on his side who will fight with him alongside him because they see this goodness and they believe in him. And yet he poo-poos it the whole story. I mean, he's like a 14 year old boy. What 14 year old boy wants to be told that their superpower is love? <laughs> yeah, I guess if you put it that way. Who else do we think of when we think of chosen ones? So we have a chosen one who's chosen by the villain in Harry. Mm-hmm. Let's talk quickly about Katniss Everdeen because she's a chosen one oh. who chooses herself. And then is continued to be chosen by the people. By the people, right. Because so she steps in 
uh, to take on the role of the chosen for the Hunger Games from her sister. Uh, and so she's ready to die for her sister at the beginning of the story of Hunger Games. And then over the course of her protests, then the rest of the society, the oppressed society, comes, comes onto her side. And it's interesting as someone whose defining, initial defining characteristic is of self-sacrifice to step in for her sister. The fact that a lot of people later on end up dying on her behalf to keep her in that role of the Mockingjay, of the symbol for hope for the rebellion, is really sad. And that might explain a lot. I mean, it might go to some ways to explain a lot, a lot of the Blast book, which is a frustrating read, to say the least but that she's been kind of made into the symbol and she's a person of action, of, of stepping in, of, of impulsivity almost. And then she's been, she's carefully manipulated to be protected all throughout the second Hunger Games so that she can escape alive at the cost of other people's lives. I feel like it grates against her character. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, her sister dies anyway, which <sighs> is just so kind of nihilistic that, that it really turned me off from that entire story. Uh, because we ex- we assume that because of the sacrifice she makes at the beginning of the story, then her sister is going to live. But this particular trilogy of books is not does not desire to end kind of with a, a happy ending. Well, I didn't see it as nihilistic of the story necessarily. I think I saw it as that the the side of good is more morally ambiguous than we're comfortable having it be. That Beatty and Gale are the ones who are designing the weapons to to lure people in, and then you know based on hunter tactics that they're going to be using these sort of cruel acts of war as much as the capital is uh, in the way that innocents will end up being killed for the greater good. Right. So Katniss kind of ends up getting swept up in it all. Sure. And then she, yeah, she becomes a cog in this wider machine, even if she's a more visible cog. So the fact that she chooses herself at the beginning, she doesn't really know what that means. All she knows at the beginning of the story is that she's trying to save her sister's life. I think, yeah, I think that her story is one of unfolding, unfolding complexity and uh, the scale of it ratchets up throughout the, the books. And it is, I mean, it's horribly sad in the end that that whole, this whole rebellion gets catalyzed by that initial sacrifice and then that it's all for naught. But that her sister chooses to put herself in harm's way is maybe also says something about her choice. We should do a whole episode on Hunger Games because there's a, there's a lot there. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of what we're talking about in the first season here is giving us good fodder for later later stories. So we have a, a villain choosing a hero or choosing a chosen one, a chosen one choosing herself. And then we have a bunch of chosen ones who are chosen either by prophecy or by other people. Uh, one of the ones that jumps out at me is Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars prequels because he is chosen by Qui-Gon Jinn in Star Wars Episode One when Qui-Gon finds him on Tatooine and finds out that his mother had him as a virgin birth, you know, ding. What does that sound like? Uh, <laughs> and his midichlorians are off the charts. We don't need to spend a lot of time on midichlorians here, but there that is. That's how you tell how a hero is a heroic hero, that they have midichlorians off the charts. That's right. And then he, and then Qui-Gon basically bucks the, the council by saying he's going to train uh, the too old Anakin. 
And the whole thing comes down to a prophecy that Qui-Gon knows about balance in the Force, one that will bring balance to the Force. So what we have in the story of the prequels is a fundamental misunderstanding of what that prophecy is going to mean. Because then Obi-Wan Kenobi takes up his master's prophecy, and in the end, at the end of Revenge of the Sith, Obi-Wan Kenobi yelling, you are the chosen one. And, and yet, in the end, that prophecy was about Anakin destroying the Jedi and then eventually destroying Emperor Palpatine. So what we have here is, is a prophecy that continues to get reinterpreted over and over again until it seems to make sense. In a recent Star Wars novel called Master and Apprentice, we learn that Qui-Gon Jinn is just kind of gaga for prophecies. He is one of the Jedi oh, who really no. loves prophecies, unlike many other Jedi who don't really put stock in them. But Qui-Gon is very much into prophecies. And so when he finds Anakin, we understand why he's so kind of gung-ho to, to take him on. He's like the Trelawney of Jedi. Yeah, exactly. That's really, that's really, I didn't know that because it does seem like the prophecies, if they get reinterpreted so many different times, they're basically useless. They make more sense after the fact than they do in the moment and people are staking a whole lot on them. Which is also kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of prophecy. We talked a little bit about this mm, last sure. episode when we were talking about the centaurs in Harry Potter and how true prophecy is telling truth to power so that the future might change. It's not about predicting future events. So when we talk about prophecy in sci-fi and fantasy, it tends to be that more popular understanding of fortune telling as opposed to what one of my Old Testament professors would talk about as forth telling as opposed to foretelling forth-telling as in speaking the truth as opposed to just trying to tell people uh, what will happen. It's what will happen if something else doesn't happen. That's right. And I think we do see these, all the prophecies that we mentioned in this episode, I think are all going to be the kind that are just, we are trying to predict something hundreds, if not thousands of years in the future. Good luck. Uh, going back to Anakin for a minute, though, uh, we, we learn in, in the more recent, uh, especially since Disney took over Lucasfilm, uh, a different understanding of uh, Chosen Ones within Star Wars, in that the Force can create these vessels of, of chosenness, if you will, and that both Luke and Rey fall into that category. So there's not just one Chosen One for all time, it's that the Force will... Uh, present itself to these individuals when they're needed for some particular purpose. Uh, which brings us to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, sure. Uh, who is, they're sort of a serial chosen ones. There's like a succession. There's a, a baton being handed down from, slay, from Slayer to Slayer. Well, not directly from Slayer to Slayer, but there can only be one at a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and those are from the seasons you've seen. The later seasons actually play with that, which is what's so fascinating about Buffy, uh, is that, you know, so she's chosen in the next long line of Slayers going back to the beginnings of humanity. Mm -hmm. The final episode of season four, which is super weird, introduces the concept of the first Slayer. And then the main thrust of the final season is that a bunch of old men made up the rule binding the magic of the Slayer to one person at a time. Why? Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> <Doesn't> <laughs> Cute, that get, very incredulous. Doesn't that get screwed up too when, when she technically dies? Well, yeah, exactly, that what, yeah. what Faith is able, 
Is that when faith gets like activated? Yeah, and, like, it's actually, yeah, Kendra first. Kendra, okay. Uh, so Buffy dies at the end of season one for just a yes. minute. Xander brings her back. Kendra shows up in midway through season two. Then Kendra dies at the end of season two, which activates faith. And oh, gosh, uh, that's right. faith then grow, goes off the rails. Uh, <laughs> becomes the oh, anti-slayer basically uh, but then in season seven we we're introduced to the potential slayers that they go out and they find all these people who could be activated if buffy were to die again or i guess if technically if faith were to die again because i we we imagine that if buffy dies again it's like nothing's going to happen because she's basically out of the she's no longer in line of succession out of the line of succession uh and so they they grab all these potential slayers and then in the final episode of Buffy, Willow, who at this point is uber witch and is incredibly magical and powerful, Willow breaks the original binding of those old men who made the magic in the first place and activates the slayer in all of the potentials. And they all become slayers right then and there in the, in the end of the, in the final battle. And there's this incredibly moving montage of little girls and women around the world waking up to that potential uh and it makes me cry every time i watch it there's this little girl <laughs> yeah there's this little girl who's about to who's batting in a baseball game and she looks a little nervous and then and then her that slayer potential awakens in her and she just sort of grips the bat and it sort of grins wow. at the kid pitching to her but i love that the that the, the, there is this construction of chosen one that then gets totally turned on its head and then expanded the chosen one is a complete fabrication in buffy that then gets used for a better purpose it's a made-up thing originally it was designed in order for these this group of men to control the slayer and that's what becomes the watcher's council and when buffy then basically breaks away from the watcher's council in season three somewhere in season three, uh, they basically try to bring her back under control. And she says, no, I'm not playing your game anymore. Uh, and so the rest of the show is really about her taking on that patriarchy and then eventually breaking it. And so the chosenness for Buffy is about granting that chosenness to everybody else who has potential to wield it. And it's great. And you should totally watch it. Yeah, there's something very beautiful in there about like the slayer potential and all of these people kind of being asleep and needing to be activated. Mm -hmm. And that it was being, um, it was, it was being tamped down by this magic that was created by this group of men at some point. I mean, it's kind of, once you start oh digging gosh. into that, you see what the real story is about this, this sort of challenge to patriarchy. Or, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that as like the literal works of evil that tamps down the potential of, of goodness, of power, of light in, every, in people. Yeah, because power in itself, I mean, when we think about power in the sense of agency, is very positive. When we're talking mm -hmm. about power as coercion or power over, that's when it becomes negative. But power as is, is a sense of agency, a sense of I can do it, is very important. I, I will finish Buffy before the... Before, I'll maybe after Christmas, I'll sit down and watch it all. This is why I binge watched the entire run of Game of Thrones before we started this podcast. Just for fodder. So, so I could, I could ah. talk about it. Because I read the books years and years ago, but it's, it's, they weren't in my head anymore. Well, speaking of Game of Thrones, there is, there is a lot of ambiguous prophecy in A Song of Ice and Fire, a little bit in Game of Thrones, the show. Although, of course, as we have recently learned, the fantasy elements and the purpose of downplayed. But the main prophecy and chosen one we see in Song of Ice and Fire is that 
that prince who is promised prophecy, the Azor Ahai reborn, that um, the people who worship the Lord of Light believe that that great warrior will be reborn amid salt and smoke and defeat the darkness. And then there's a question, they have that prophecy, there's a question of who is it? And there's several people who are believed to be this prince or princess who was promised throughout the course of the novels. The first one, of course, being Stannis. We are introduced to him as a character with Melisandre, the Red Priestess, believing he is the chosen one. Um, I guess, I, I think the the reborn amid salt and smoke part is because of um, they're on Dragonstone where there's a lot of ocean and they're burning they're burning the, the statues of the seven. But they can also at any other time refer to John to refer to Daenerys. So it's just kind of playing with the idea of, of who this ambiguous prophecy could return, could refer to. And then in the show, the one who ends up defeating the darkness is Arya. So did they just give up? Is it that she's part of this sort of three-headed dragon? You know, with no, her and John and Daenerys? To... No, there's a lot of fan theories here. Yeah, don't, don't try to read too much into it. That's just the writers being lazy. Oh, they were super lazy. Yeah, and I think that when you talk about John or Daenerys or, or these other people who would feel pressure to be cho- to be chosen. John, as he goes to the wall and then becomes the Lord Commander of the Night Watch, he really has sort of chosen that life. He doesn't want anything else. He he wants that. And in the end, that's what he chooses. He could have been king, but he chose not to. Uh, and then Daenerys, again, has all of this pressure from to fulfill what her family, she assumes, wanted. She doesn't know. All she knows is her... In- horrible manipulative gross brother has been had been saying before he you know gets killed and then she decides that that's what she wants uh and then kind of never wavers from that well there's a, that sort of brief moment where she all she wants to be is the khaleesi married to drogo with their son who also is prophesied he's prophesied to be that stallion who mounts the world um the call of call the king of kings oh hey there's hey. another <laughs> throwback <laughs> Um, we're just gonna dig every time we have a jesus reference (laughs) but then he is he's killed you know in childbirth because of the fear of who he will turn into so that vision for her is destroyed which then if she is the princess who's promised that's the kickstarting event for her rebirth reborn a bit among salt her peers and fire uh sorry smoke which is the fire the funeral pyre of her husband and then that's what causes the dragons and then you know so on and so forth um people sort of believing in the prophecies, being motivated by them, but ultimately, at least in Game of Thrones, they're not extremely useful. Melisandre kind of flops around from one person to another, being like, I think it's Stannis, so maybe it's Jon, um, and ends up doing horrible things in the pursuit of that. She gets, she kills Shireen in oh, the Oh, God, I don't even, I don't want to talk show. about I'm that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I have, I can't. But her, her sincere belief that that's, a worthwhile that that ultimate goal here we come back to that idea of the greater good is worth killing a child over and other people to to get to that end well a lot of these chosen ones that we're talking about continue to have to choose over and over again to be that person to either choose it the first time or to continue to confirm it over and over again and uh the one that jumps to my mind now because it, we see it in Harry, we see it in Daenerys, we see it in Buffy. Uh, we also see it in Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, where he, like Jon Snow, 
doesn't want to be king. He wants to be a ranger. He wants to just wander the wilds doing his thing. And it's not until we start having the conflict that he then gets drawn back in to his true destiny, uh, which is that wonderful, wonderful poem, that famous poem of Tolkien's. The only part anybody knows is the first two lines. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes of fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. So here we have a prophecy, right? Or is it just a poem? Who knows? It is, though, the thing that the characters latch onto to talk about Aragorn, that the sword Narsil, which was the blade that was broken during the battle with Sauron when Isildur cut the, cut the ring off of, of uh, Sauron's hand, uh, that blade is then reforged as Enduril, the flame of the West. Uh, I love the names of swords and <laughs> rings. Uh, and given to Aragorn that he will carry that sword And so Aragorn, in taking on the mantle of king and then choosing again and again to live into that, uh, both the expectations of other people and also his own expectations, uh, he leads the people of the West into victory against the shadow. And like you said, with Harry and uh, the love of his friends, it happens the same thing with Aragorn. Everybody that Aragorn meets falls in love with him. We talked about that a couple episodes with Eowyn, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's not just the female characters. All of the male characters in Lord of the Rings fall in love with Aragorn as well. They will all die for that character. And he has a love for them in the way, like, a kingly love. A love between a king and his subjects. And we see after the battle, him going into the houses of healing. And it is said that the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so we see him healing people. Ding, by the way. <laughs> more, Je- more Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Um, but we see him healing people in the houses, and that's how word spreads throughout Minas Tirith that the king has come. What an incredible image of leadership that that is. That's so different from, I think, our American ideals of what makes a strong leader. And I, I really, I love, I love in this trope examining all these sort of people who don't want power are the ones who most are most worthy to wield it. I find that to be um, a very intriguing concept in fantasy and science fiction that we don't really see played out as much in our, in our, the rest of our lives. And it's the chosen ones who want power, who end up being the ones that fall like Daenerys, like Anakin Anakin. uh, and the ones who, who are trying to flee the power, but then in the end embrace it for that good uh, are the ones who do the right thing and who win the victory in the end, like Aragorn, like Buffy, like Harry. And we also, oh, you've got Moana on here. I know you need to at least plug Moana for a minute here. She, yeah, so she is a chosen one in that she is chosen by the ocean to fulfill this role of returning the heart of Tefiti. And I love that she's chosen not for any power beyond, kind of like Harry, she's, her power is compassion and love. The ocean chooses her after it sees her escorting a baby sea turtle back to the ocean away from predators. And that's when she is chosen. And it's that ultimately that compassion and empathy that allows her to see through the horrible facade of Tikah, the sort of like fire demon 
um, and see inside a really hurt Tafiti who can be restored by returning the heart. Um, and she, it takes that trust, that compassion, that empathy that she has had since infancy. And she chooses again and again over the course of her journey to keep going. Right. She questions her, her path or her chosen list a lot. And then Maui doesn't help because he's kind of saying, why did the ocean choose you? Like you can't even sail. So it's showing it's, it's not skills. It's, it's innate power of compassion. But we know that the ocean chose her because it keeps flopping her back out of the boat whenever she falls off. Oh, there's that beautiful moment. She's questioning her call and what she's meant to be doing where she reiterates who she is, how she got there. And then Moana takes on that call and is like, no, I know who I am and I know what I'm called to do. I am Moana. I am Iron Man. <laughs> no, no, wait. Uh, no. I am Moana. Sorry. I am the way, the truth, and life. No, wait. Uh, ah, ding. <laughs> Not a ding. Uh, all right. So what we're seeing here is, especially when we're looking at these more positive chosen ones, uh, we're seeing this idea of love, compassion, healing being their main drivers. It brings us to the ultimate chosen one. So do you want to talk about Jesus? Yeah, we should probably talk about Jesus. There's almost too much to say. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, let's let's stay let's stick with the, uh, the that concept of chosenness and especially again Jesus choosing again and again to do his mission. I think that's where where the concept of chosenness really uh, intersects our own lives. Right. Where it's not necessarily other people's expectations. It's um, it's our desire for freedom and understanding what true freedom is. The book of uh, the letter to the Galatians says, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only don't let this freedom be an opportunity to indulge your selfish impulses, but serve each other through love. So that freedom from the perspective of faith is that serving in love and mutual serving in love, serving one another. And, and again, choosing that again and again, we have the choice to love. We have the choice to you know, participate in, as you said earlier with Harry, nonviolence. We have the choice to pursue justice and peace. And we could also choose other things. And yet God has chosen us to be God's beloved, who has given us gifts in order to do the mission that God has given us. So that makes us chosen ones who then get to choose again and again and again, like Jesus does. Right. Our model here is of someone who had, who had great power, who used it to bring people into relationship with each other, to bring them out of isolation and closer back into the fold of community. And then ultimately did have to choose again and again, as you said, to take up the role he was born into out of love, out of a desire to bring wholeness into the world. Yeah, and, and God in the scene of the transfiguration says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So there's the chosen one right there. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus do? Chooses again. He chooses to drink the cup that has been put out for him. That opens up the path for us to be chosen ones as well uh, through baptism, that we are we are chosen by God, I mean, from from existing, but then in a particular way, given special ministries and gift of the Holy Spirit in baptism and in that sealing process um, that allows us to take up our ministries and our missions 
Mm-hmm. We say in the baptism service, you are marked, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. So in a way, with the oil that we put on someone's head at baptism, that is an anointing. Just like King David was anointed by Samuel, uh, just like Jesus was anointed in the baptism, um, not by oil, but by the the dove of the Holy Spirit coming down. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And in each of these places, we are chosen and then we get to choose how to respond to the blessings that God has given us. Right. And what to do with that incredible gift of love we've been given. It's time for the final two chapters of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone here in our ongoing book group for the podcast for Nerdy Christians, chapter 16, Through the Trap Door. Exam time comes and Harry manages to get through his tests even though his scar keeps hurting him. A trip to Hagrid's cabin after they finish their tests reveals that the notoriously loose-lipped Hagrid could not keep the secret of Fluffy's musically-induced repose from the cloaked figure who bet the dragon's egg while playing cards. That's it then. Snape knows everything. And what's this? Dumbledore has just headed off on urgent Ministry of Magic business? McGonagall tells the trio that the stone is well protected and to drop their nonsense or else risk expulsion. That doesn't stop our heroes. They head for the trapdoor that night, hexing a brave Neville Longbottom along the way. They scoot by Fluffy. Hermione blasts the devil's snare with blue fire. Harry outflies the keys, and Ron wins wizard's chess by sacrificing his own piece. Hermione's clever mind solves the potion riddle, but only one of them can go on. It's got to be Harry. His name is on the book's cover, after all. Harry steps through the flames into the final chamber. Chapter 17, The Man with Two Faces. The person in the chamber isn't Voldemort, isn't Snape, it's Quirrell, that unassuming paragon of pedagogical excellence. In typical villain fashion, he monologues, carefully explaining all the ways in which Harry's rash assumptions have been leading him to the wrong conclusion, before focusing on the task at hand, removing the stone from the mirror of Erised. A disembodied voice tells Quirrell to use the boy, use Harry, and by looking in the mirror, Harry receives the stone, at this moment, his heart's deepest desire. Although Harry lies about what he saw in the mirror, the disembodied voice sees through his deception and asks Quirrell to speak face to face. And Two-Faced Quirrell turns out to be literally two-faced. Voldemort has not been hi- haunting a forest in Albania, but has been hanging out on the back of Quirrell's head for the entire school year. What a view that must have been. Quirrell tries to seize Harry in the stone, but is unable to. Something about Harry repels him, blistering his fingers. Harry's scar burns with the worst pain he has ever felt, and he wakes up three days later in the hospital wing. Ding. Professor Dumbledore tells him about what had happened. Voldemort is gone, leaving Quirrell to die. The stone has been destroyed, allowing the Flamels to go on to the next great adventure. And Harry was protected by his mother's love, which has left a mark much deeper than his scar. The end of the year feast comes and Gryffindor gains 170 points. Take the house cup from Slytherin, with Neville gaining the winning points because it takes a lot of bravery to stand up to one's friends. The term ends, and the students leave the school. Harry consigns himself to returning to the Dursleys, but Ron has invited him over during the summer, so that's something to look forward to at least. Okay, so last two chapters of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Their quills have anti-cheating spells on them. 
What's that about? Because they're high schoolers. Yeah, but let's teach them some integrity. If they, they have integrity by, by dangling house points over their heads. That's the level of integrity they're teaching. Made up system. Were you as frustrated as I was when you when first reading the McGonagall scene where she just totally brushes them off? I was surprised that they even went to talk to her because I've got this idea in my mind that Harry, Ron, and Hermione always just go ahead and do their own thing without ever seeking guidance. But in this case, yeah, McGonagall basically said, don't worry about it. And where did they learn that tendency from? I'm thinking from experiences like this, where she's like, oh, is something you have to say more important than the Ministry for Magic? It's like, yeah, actually, learning what that's like in the later books, it's much more important. Yeah, especially especially since the this trio of first years has absolutely no problem getting by any of the enchantments that they set up. Right. I think they... I love that, though, this this has come full circle in seventh book when Harry breaks into Hogwarts and is like, you know, he runs into McGonagall and he's like, I need your help to find this thing. And she just jumps into action. I do think it shows a character growth that at first they do want to go and do right by the authorities. They want to tell the teachers, but the teachers fail them. So they have to learn to do it on their own. I have a weird little theory about Ron, Harry, and Hermione. I'm sure other people have talked about them being ethos pathos and logos didn't take greek have you heard this before i don't i don't think i've i'm sure i haven't made this up i'm sure other people have written long long essays about uh these it's like the three ways of persuading somebody are ethos pathos and logos um ethos being ethical or character driven uh, credibility pathos being emotional and logos being logic based and each of the three characters in the main trio of harry potter falls into one of those. Harry is ethos because of his well-developed sense of right and wrong. Uh, he, he's going to do right, even if it means having to break some rules. He, he is always going to be stalwart and true in that way. Ron is pathos. He's very emotional, right? I mean, if, if of the three of them, Ron is the emotional one. He is, yeah. And that's, that gets downplayed in the movies, I think. And then Hermione is obviously Lagos or, or uh, the the logic, the, the clever one, the one that's using her brain. And so we have these, all three of these ways that ancient Greek um, rhetoricians talked about how to, uh, how to write speeches, how to persuade people, which is actually still used in modern day advertising. Uh, we see that in the trio of main characters, which is why they seem so fleshed out as a group. Mm, they get that from all angles. Yeah, we're getting it from all angles. It's like they're one character in three. Well, I, I wonder if you see that. I have, I've never thought about it like that before, but in in the end of the, this first chapter, chapter 16, Harry is the one who gets it the most on a deep gut level. He gets that this is the right thing to do. We have to go down into the tra- through the trap door. He says, um, if I have to go back to the Dursleys and wait for Voldemort to find me there, it's only dying a bit later than I would have because I'm never going over to the dark side. He gets it immediately that this is a life or death situation that's way more important than house points or even expulsion. Yeah, he says losing points doesn't matter anymore. Can't you see? Yeah, hint, it never mattered. But <laughs> they think it matters. Right, right. Yeah, and but he's always the one who, who understands the moral dimension of what's mm-hmm. happening. Uh, and partly it's because he can feel it personally. Like he can feel the pain uh, of Voldemort's in, imminent return in his physical body. And he's been the most impacted by it thus far with the fact that his, you know, he was raised an orphan. So he has, he has the most impact, but that he gets them on board. And then 
I guess his his stalwartness gets them to be able to risk themselves alongside him. And then once they're into the trials through the trap door, each one of them gets to use their gifts mm. to get past things. Hermione with the devil's snare, uh, Harry with his flying prowess with the keys, Ron with wizard's chess, because uh, he's he even says, you know, I'm way better at this than you guys, so let me play. And they're like, whatever, no problem. Tell us what to do. Um, and Hermione with her cleverness, the figuring out the potion rule. Now, when you first read the book, did you try to figure out the riddle before you turned the page? Oh, yeah. I think I still have scribblings in my my copy. Yeah. And then, obviously, Harry has to go forward because it's his book. Well, the, the teamwork is really beautiful in this. And I think it's another thing the movie downplays. Um, you see Hermione panicking, but Harry, Ron's the one who says, sorry, Harry's the one who says light a fire and at the devil's snare. And Ron's the one who says, are you a witch or not? Like he remembers, oh yeah, we can all do magic. Uh, it's natural <laughs> for him. So they're even using their station of birth. The fact that Hermione's a muggle born and forgets, oh, I can do magic. And Ron's like, duh, just use your wand. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Harry's sort of cleverness and street smarts in getting rid of thieves when on their way down. And he oh, says, yeah, yeah. he pretends to be the bloody baron. That's all cut out of the film. And it really shows the way that they can work together balancing each other's strengths even with the keys they all fly up ron flies down hermione flies up and mm-hmm. harry flies right at the middle to to capture the key and then the keys don't then fly at them at that's all in the movie yeah let's talk about you want to talk about quarrel yeah we can talk about him and then of course we're gonna end up with a bunch of dumbledore here at the end oh yeah so yeah. hit the high notes of quarrel dumbledore sure this is i think where we get the first example of of Harry's ultimate, just by being himself repelling evil, which I find so interesting that Quirrell cannot bear to touch him. Harry's not really attacking, he's defending this whole time. Yeah. Um, what do you make of Harry being able to get the stone? If he had never even gone down there, Quirrell would have still been standing there waiting, trying to figure it out, right? Yeah, I've wondered about this a lot. And the later on when Dumbledore sort of implies that he orchestrated the whole thing, he says, like, oh, you did do the thing properly, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> How much does he know? How much does he intend by showing him, the, by allowing him to see the mirror? I don't know. There's this kind of, and maybe it was early on in the book, so you don't know the extent of Dumbledore's powers. You kind of wonder, is he in the background manipulating all of this? I found that very disturbing as an 11-year-old reading these books. Uh, Voldemort says, there is a Voldemort quarrel. One of them says, there is no good and evil. There is only power in those too weak to seek it. That's quite a line of dialogue. That's a great villain line. And and it really shows what, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the Chosen Ones. If you're seeking power, and the kind of power that Voldemort's seeking is obviously power to coerce people to power over, as opposed to power with. Right, he's, he's seeking a way to extend his life, to shape the world in the image he wants it to be. And therefore, he considers himself beyond good and evil when really what he is is evil because power for power's sake is evil. There is a, a consequence for having that power and just saying, you know, I'm, again, this goes back again to the idea of the greater good. If I'm just going to reshape the world in the image that I and I alone have in my mind, it's all for the good. Because it's all better because it's, I'm right, obviously. How hubristic and self-centered is that to assume that you alone and you alone have seen the way the world should be all right so let's uh let's move past that to the conversation with dumbledore here this is our first download with dumbledore we'll get that's several, that several call it. oh that's what i'm calling it today um there's several other of those oh well, you get the download with the villain where they're like 
here's all the nice parts of my plan and all the ways that you've gone wrong. And now we have, let me explain everything to you. Except I'm not going to explain everything. So we have the, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. We're talking about the flamels. Ding. Yeah, That's another, a Jesus thing. another Jesus thing there. Uh, you know, the stone was really not such a wonderful thing. As much money in life as you could want, the two things most human beings would choose above all, the trouble is humans do have a knack of choosing precisely those things that are worst for them. And wouldn't Dumbledore know it? Why, why is that? Someone who chose the idea of power and creating a new world order over essentially the, the well-being of his family and having regretting that decision every day since his sister died. It's not, it's not about the money necessarily or the life, but it's about, you know, he, he, was, he has chosen the wrong things in his life. Uh, choosing precisely the worst things. Uh, do we do that? I mean, I think that's, is that a pretty common human thing? I think there's definitely a learning process of what we think we want, what we think is good for us versus what is actually good for us. Um, and we, we often, well, we talked about this in our, in the MacGuffin episode about what are we chasing after? Are we chasing after the wrong, the wrong things? Your mother died to save you, to have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone will give us some protection forever. Ding. Ding. And also another lovely, just a, a wonderful way of looking at what I think of as the concept of the resurrection. Mm. You know, the fact of the matter is that love love is uh true love is reciprocal love is this is this mutual relationship between two beings and so if one of them dies the other one is still loving that person which means that the love never died which means that that person is still around somehow and that's that's one of my logic for the resurrection no that's i'm that's really i'm thinking that particularly today in uh podcast time in recording time is the feast of all saints and thinking about um, the ongoing relationship we have with our dead, cultivating that, that even though someone has died, we still have a relationship with them. And because we, in our little corner of, the, of Christianity, believe in the communion of all saints, that there is this communion of people that we are all a part of, that we can, that is present in the Eucharist, that kind of, you know, heaven and earth touch in that moment, um, that the love, the love remains, and then the relationship is also remaining. And so Harry's relationship with his parents, even though they're not alive in the books at all, is a very active force um, through memory, through other people's connections with them. Uh, and we see that relationship kind of grow and develop in a very, um, I think, of a very interesting way. And it's given a bit of a tangible quality here when Hagrid gives Harry the uh, photo, photo album. Yeah, his first visual... Can I, well, I guess he saw them in the mirror, but then his first his first set of photographs of them. All right, so let's finish up with our that that last kind of big bonk on the head idea, which is it takes a great takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our enemies, but just as much to stand up to our friends. I feel this wholeheartedly. Um, I think I was actually reflecting on this as as a white person. I feel like I'm called to speak out when I see racism, and it's easy to see that happening far away and to be like oh that's wrong far away but if it's in my own friend group if it's in my own family it's much harder to speak up and speak out against that um i've been doing that when i see it in a hopefully loving and continuing a relationship way and, and asking for that to be opened up to myself as well um but that's it takes i feel that it takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our friends it's hard it's scary and that's a really good example uh, of 
basically saying, okay, I'm going to live, I'm, I'm trying to live a life of an anti-racist, which means confronting racism in my own person as well as wherever I see it. And that's more than likely going to be in my friends because those are the people I'm hanging out with. Yeah. And, and who, who I can talk to and still maintain a relationship with and learn together. The more that we're able to normalize the idea of anti-racism, the easier those conversations become because we're able to move the concept of racist or racism away from kind of a character default or a character defect. It's like a, it's a behavior we've been programmed into just by living in America, by being born and raised in this country. Yeah, so it's end, it ends up being more of a clinical definition as opposed to like this character defect idea. And so you're able to challenge that and confront it uh, because you're, we're basically saying, this, this is what I'm seeing and we can, we can really change, we can flip our script on this. And I love that, you know, coming from Neville, who has not been defined by his bravery, to have that called out in front of the entire school. It's just such an achievement of a moment for character development. To have Dumbledore saying, you know, you are, you are brave for this small, I don't even know, how did he know that that happened? Well, I'm sure that the, the school, somebody found Neville Someone in the, found in him the, and had to unfreeze him. Yeah. Uh, and he said, I tried to stop them, but... That's a um, good point, yeah. yeah. And of course, Nev, we know from Neville's story going forward in the books that he is incredibly brave, uh, especially in book seven when he is real, well, you know, uh, leading the resistance against the Death Eaters who are running Hogwarts. And honestly, if you look at the actors who play Harry and Neville now, one of them looks more like a leading man, chosen one, than the other. And it's Neville. <laughs> yeah, it became a verb. To Neville Longbottom is to kind of glow up. Glow up? Man, you, you're full of, full of things I've never heard I before. I am a person on the internet. <laughs> oh, this is, I've really enjoyed going back over the first Harry Potter book with new eyes and trying to see the resonances. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot. I hope you have as well. Yeah, sure. And I, I, I've really enjoyed reading it again and trying to read it a little bit more analytically mm. than just for pleasure. I mean, it's both. Uh, yeah, and, and we'll be back with season two. We'll be reading Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Um, and we'll let you know in, in next episode uh, what chapters we'll, we'll begin with for season two, episode one, uh, which will be coming up uh, in January 2020. Um, but I think that does it for this episode of the podcast for nerdy christians you can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media facebook.com slash nerdy christians and on twitter at nerdy christians you can find me on twitter at rev adam thomas or on my website wherethewind.com uh, check out my fantasy novels the storm curtain and the halfling contagion and we're just days away as of the publishing of this episode of the podcast from my new novel the islands of shattered glass so look for that soon. And you can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. May you be steadfast like Aragorn, compassionate like Moana, brave like Katniss, loving like Harry, determined like Buffy, and not burn down King's Landing or kill all the younglings. And may you always remember that God has chosen you. Amen. Amen.